Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, media podcasters. Before we get going, I wanted to thank you for all your support and good wishes since we moved to making the show weekly. Um, uh, We've enjoyed it a lot as well. Uh, We're going to be taking a couple of weeks break for Easter, and then we're back to it with a new show on the 22nd of April. Obviously, in the meantime, enjoy what's coming up. But we'd also like you to tell us what you think of the show in our survey. So whilst listening, open up that browser, go to themediapodcast.com slash survey, themediapodcast.com slash survey there's just a few questions there uh, tell us about the show um, you can make some recommendations for guests and pundits as well we'd love to hear that too even recommend yourself if you think you'd be great um, and if you do that we'll also put you in a draw to win a 50 quid john lewis gift card exciting stuff just go to the mediapodcast.com slash survey there's also a link in the show notes and we'll reveal the winner of that john lewis gift card uh, in the next episode what a tease themediapodcast.com slash survey that's where to go now here's the show Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On the show today, Laura Kinsberg is signing off after seven sensational years as BBC political editor. Who's replacing her and where's she going? Also on the programme, ex-director of product for the BBC iPlayer, Dan Taylor-Watt, unpacks the latest in the streaming wars. We'll explore ads on Disney Plus and whether Netflix is finally cracking down on password sharing. And in the Media Quiz, we discover who's made media milestones in the industry this week. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. Well, this week we've seen new Ofcom chair Michael Grade admit that he doesn't use social media just as a regulator begins to take on a more digital role for the industry. Channel 5 celebrates 25 years on the air and reminding us all of a little bit too much about Keith Chegwin. Uh, Ask your mum if you don't know. Uh, An open letter has gone out calling for the government to continue to support the audio content fund. And aside from Will Smith and Chris Rock's altercation, Apple TV made history with Coda, the first film distributed by a streaming service to win the Oscar award for best picture. Uh, And finally, Christian Grew Murphy is to replace Jon Snow as the main channel for news anchor. Uh, Now onto the media stories shaking up the industry this week. Uh, Joining me today is the planning director, Edelman. It's Karen Robinson. Hi, Matt. 
Um, you've been working away on a book, I hear. Can you give us a sneak preview at all about what you've been doing? I Well, yes, uh, a, a cheeky debut of my work in progress. I'm working on a novel, strangely enough. Um, it's oh. it, Bear with me. It may sound a little odd. I promise it, it it's actually going to be a cracker. Um, it's a political drama set in the kingdom of fairy. So if you like either mythology slash fantasy or political drama, West Wing style uh, realpolitik, it's for both of you. Exciting. When uh, are you looking to finish it? Well, I'm, I'm, I've got a six month course that I've got mapped out with. Uh, I'm working with the Faber Academy um, to get it done. So my goal is to get it finished by then. And then there's a whole process of searching out an agent and getting a publisher sorted. But um, it's so far, I'm loving it. Sounds good. Well, we'll we'll keep keep tracks on your progress. Also with us is Charlotte Tobit, UK editor at the Press Gazette. Uh, Charlotte, I saw you spoke to Lizo Mazimba. Uh, I guess celebrating Newsround's fiftieth anniversary earlier this week. Uh, were you a Newsround fan? Is that why you were doing the job that you're doing now? Uh, I know that lots of journalists say that. I don't know if it is that for me, but I did love Newsround, and Lizo was my <laughs> presenter. I think lots of kids in the UK had like a newsround presenter that they loved and remember and for me that was Lizo so talking to him was very exciting so yeah congratulations to newsround on 50 years yeah 50 years it's quite it's quite an achievement isn't it um and it kind of continues doing uh, doing things i think they're introducing some some bsl based programming aren't they online now as well so it's good that they're still there and and expanding and on to our first story, an unprecedented coalition of British media organisations, including the News Media Association, the BBC, Channel 4 and ITN, have signed a letter to the PM calling for critical legislation against tech giants to be brought forward. Um, Charlotte, what's triggered this coalition to form and, and what, what are they after now? Well, essentially, uh, next week it will be a year since the government sort of brought the digital markets unit um, uh, made it a thing um, but it, it's not on statutory footing yet um, it's sort of, it's basically got shadow powers to sort of start looking at things it could do between um, uh, publishers and tech giants and also the tech giants and like advertising markets and how to rebalance all of that but basically what this coalition has obviously had enough of waiting and are saying, you know, you need to get on with it. This is taking too long. There's been a lot going on in the wider global industry uh, around similar things this year. Um, obviously, there was already the code of conduct in Australia forcing um, the platforms to negotiate with publishers, but there's been new updates in places like the US and Canada and um, Europe quite recently um, made their own decisions. So. Uh, I think basically they're saying, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to hurry up because for us, things aren't getting any easier and the platforms need to be brought into check. Karen, what do you think the direction of travel for the government is? How, how will they respond? Are they going to look positively towards this? Um, you know, we'll wait and see. I think probably there is going to be some public pressure to do some regulation. I think my only anxiety around this is that the government doesn't have a particularly strong track record of being good at regulating um, the platforms. Um, there are a lot of unforeseen consequences that tend to crop up. Um, you know, we've seen this with the European Union's efforts to rein in um, platforms like Google. Quite often it winds up making things worse for the consumer rather than better. So um, I think, you know, we'll just watch carefully. But there 
there have been, you know, some of the legislation that's been drafted already um, has has been flagged by not even the platforms themselves, but by campaigners and activists saying, actually, there, there, there's some things you haven't thought through here. So um, we'll wait and see what comes up. Um, I think the experience in Australia hasn't necessarily been universally um, successful either way. But, you know, Facebook obviously famously withdrew their news from the platform um, in objection to that proposed new change and then had to back down from that as well. So I'm somewhat skeptical about the ability of of regulation alone to solve these types of problems. I think, you know, you're going to have to look at things much more holistically because um, these these platforms are too big and these problems are now too endemic for um, any one government anywhere in the world to to make these kinds of changes on their own. Um, so and the platforms will have to also play a role because they know their platforms best and and what can be effective. So it, it's a little bit tricky to see what the way forward is going to be. I mean, Charlotte, I think Nadine Dorries said um, she was keen to bring in like Australia plus plus plus. Um, do you think um, we're, we're likely to see uh, a situation where um, the tech platforms have got to start writing checks to the to the big publishers? Yeah, I mean, in a way, they're already trying to make people happy. They've got this Google News showcase deals now where they're paying publishers to basically put their content in a special place on Google which I think some publishers are quite happy with. It's basically, you know, free money. They just have to employ a few people to run it. And then obviously there's also Facebook News, which a lot of the major publishers are on. But I think there's a lot of pressure for a more holistic thing. And essentially the view is that the platforms are choosing to, by using schemes like that, they're essentially doing it on their own terms. And, you know, I suppose the question is, should the regulators be calling those shots not the platforms themselves well it isn't the only coalition of uh, publishers that have been getting together this week there's another one uh, this time calling on the government to give journalists further protection in the courts i think charlotte you wrote about this this is slaps what a what what a slaps and it's not all about will smith <laughs> slaps are strategic litigation against public participation uh, so there's a reason why we abbreviate it um and essentially it's it's these often libel, but not only libel cases, maybe privacy as well, um, cases that are essentially, people view them as being brought to intimidate journalists and publishers from um, writing about certain topics. Um, for example, there have been a few cases from like Russian oligarchs pre-war, been a couple of recent cases with FT journalists and current and former FT journalists and uh, there's also been um, observer journalist Carol Cadwallader. So basically I've written about this submission to Dominic Raab's um, consultation about his planned Bill of Rights which would replace the Human Rights Act and he has said that he wants to improve freedom of expression and basically there's a consultation out asking what could we do to improve freedom of expression. Obviously that includes things for publishers although it's not only for them. And so um, the Society of Editors has written into the consultation and also this group um, of the Mail, the Eye, the Times and the Telegraph all teamed up to submit some proposals together. Um, And on the slap front, the interesting point is that they want there to be safeguards to make sure that people can't just target individual journalists. So they have to go to the people, you know, the publisher themselves or the or maybe an editor, rather than just intimidating people lower down the food chain, essentially, um, which obviously 
would would have completely changed, say, the Carol Cadwallader case, where she's very much being targeted as an individual journalist. There are some other interesting things in their proposal as well. For example, for privacy cases, they think that claimants should have to show actual harm, just like they do in defamation cases already. They want people stopped from being able to use data protection claims just as sort of a bolt-on to other cases because it just complicates things and it never really has a difference, but it makes costs escalate very quickly, you know, for no good reason really. For example, Meghan Markle's privacy case against the Mail on Sunday, she added a data protection claim as well. Do you think, Karen, there's, there is there is a danger that even whilst trying to you know stop oligarchs using their money to to uh, force the press to, to do what they want that uh, for for individuals it makes them harder to to approach the, the press with with claims where they've been mistreated I mean it's tricky to get the balance I think I come at it from you know originally I'm American and in America the balance is quite different in terms of how the media operates free speech is is much more legally protected the presumption is um, that you should have the right to publish and requires very very strong um, uh, rationale to any to ever prevent publication as is as is much more common here um, and anti-slap legislation is is common in not universal in the US but there are several states States that have strong anti-slap legislation, um, which is used specifically um, in a very similar way to try and prevent uh, punitive punitive lawsuits um, against journalists and um, and with the presumption of free speech. So, I think the you know in my perception is that in the UK marketplace, um, the 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 pri- the concept of people's privacy rights um, is very strong. Um, it is, I think, used. More often than not, not usually by ordinary people, but by quite powerful people. So I think the the idea that privacy rights in this way, are, you know, would be used by an ordinary person down the street to bring an injunction against uh, against a newspaper, um, or to take action against somebody who's um, who's impugned them, is rare. It's usually people who are already quite powerful and quite prominent. So I don't necessarily think that um, this is going to uh, like reigning in that right will harm the normal person on the street. And there is, I think, a strong presumption that you should be able to allow work in the public interest. Um, you know, certainly um, the work of Carol Kowadler, whatever you think of her, whatever you think of her work is, you know, is journalism in the public interest um, that, you know, is out there and provi- provides useful information. So I think it probably is about right that, that this be looked at. Um, it will be interesting to see, though, how the government takes it up because they've kind of swung back and forth in my view on kind of how they how they how truly they respect freedom of this of the press so um we'll we'll see where they wind up well talking about speaking truth to power um after much speculation laura coonsberg has been announced as the permanent host of the bbc sunday morning political program replacing andrew marr uh karen laura's promised a new look format I mean, is there a limit to what you can do on a Sunday morning? Can can it be remixed and reinvented, do you think? Well, I kind of think you need to because it's, uh, to be honest, it's a bit stale. I mean, even even I, who am a, a keen um, political news follower, rarely sit down to watch the Sunday shows. Um, uh, I think it, the, the way it's mostly used is now it, it sets the agenda for the rest of the week, and you know people will watch it in clip format. It will be used in the in the broadcasts. Um, I I actually am excited about this, although. 
I have to say, as a fan of Newscast, I'm very disappointed that Laura's stepping down to spend less time uh, working on the, uh, one of my favorite political podcasts. Um, but I think they did such a good job with that and with other um, shows that Laura's worked on of of trying to make the news really compelling, really interesting. Um, so I'm, I'm actually really hopeful for what she might be able to do. I would love to have a Sunday program that felt a little bit more like a boring tea at your grand's. Um, I think, you know, I, I would like to see them try and shake things up a little bit. Let's see where they go. I mean, you mentioned the US there. I mean, there's there's a much bigger history, isn't there, with the, the US Sunday morning shows. It it really is a, a, a big part of the week and they all fight to really get guests. Um, we haven't really, we've, we've maybe tried to replicate that slightly in the UK, but we've never really managed it. Is it just because we haven't got... Um, as many crazy politicians as they have in the US that you can fill uh, all this airtime with. Yeah, I mean, certainly certainly, some of the people who are good at morning TV are not necessarily the people who are the best politicians in the US, So, um, but they do make good TV. Um, and yeah, so we, we do have a tradition in the US of you know shows like Meet the Press, which do set, um, set a little bit of the agenda for the week. Um, and they make it they make it a kind of tentpole of their uh, of their original coverage um, make sure they allow it to make news I think there's a little bit um, a little bit more of a sense of it being a cultural moment although I think even in the US that's that's declining lately I don't think it's as powerful or as impactful as it used to be as as with all things media proliferation means that you know no one platform is is really dominant anymore uh, Charlotte, obviously, with Laura off to off to Sunday mornings, um, that's freed up her political head to roll. It's it's a bit of a poison chalice as a job anyway, but uh, people have been kind of dropping out of this quite significantly. Um, who's left uh, on the list to become the new political editor? Uh, Anishka Rastana, um who is currently at ITV, has previously been at the Guardian. I think she's in the running, and yes, yeah, Sophie Ridge. Um, so it looks like it will be another woman, which is quite exciting, to be honest, to have two in a row. It really feels like um, the industry's changed. You know, it wasn't just like one and then, you know, we'll wait however many years again for another one, like like, like we do with prime ministers. Um, so, um, but, but yeah, it definitely seems like um, people have realised that it's not necessarily a fun job. It's very, very full on. Um, you've got very long days you've got horrendous abuse online like is it worth it and I guess you need to get people in the right time in their lives like maybe in terms of how old their children are and that sort of thing um but yeah I I mean I hopefully we'll find out soon because I'm kind of sick of all the speculating articles (laughs) Well, it's been, it's been knocking on for a long time. I think the new Sunday show would start in September, uh, but I think she's finished doing uh, political editing this week. Uh, so you, we would expect some announcements uh, pretty soon, uh, which, of course, we will cover here on the Media Podcast. And on to the deep dive interview this week. Are you team Netflix, Disney or Apple TV? Or maybe you're a multi-platformer and signed up to all three. Well, wherever you get your TV, March was jam-packed with streaming announcements. I spoke to the brilliant Dan Taylor-Watt, ex-director of BBC's iPlayer and BBC Sounds, uh, to find out what it's all about. Here's his 101 on Disney Plus introducing ads. I think Disney's in a bit of a purple patch at the moment. So they've just um, reported some really good year-on-year growth results. And I think they're looking to build on that. So they added 35 million subscribers in the year. They've been able to compete quite nicely on price with Netflix. They've got an annual subscription offer, which Netflix don't have, which actually works out 
cheaper than. I mean, that. they are quite they are quite cheap, aren't they? They're quite a cheap operator. They've started at five ninety nine. They're up to seven ninety nine. But then the the annual works out about six pounds sixty or so. It's an attractive price point. I think they're in a good place content wise as well. So they've got you know some real banker franchises with with Star Wars, Marvel, lots of sort of evergreen content like the the Simpsons, Pixar movies, etc. I think they're well placed. They've also recently done a marketing campaign, which I think is quite smart, which is um, stories you'd expect and stories you wouldn't. All, all the things you know you'll get from the trusted Disney brand for the kids, but also introducing more edgy content, The Walking Dead, etc. So I think, you know, moving into advertising makes a lot of sense. I think they're pretty attractive as far as advertisers go, you know, versus Netflix, which has had its share of controversies with with some of its content. And I think it should enable them to keep the prices uh, low and potentially even offer a lower price point. So for a consumer, do you think it would be a $3.99 or or, or something plus a limited number of ads? Will that be the offer? I'd be surprised if they went as low as that. You never know. Maybe a $4.99 with ads would be quite an attractive price point. People are in that mindset of reviewing the monthly outgoings, I think. And so the more people they can get onto that annual subscription, the better where you forget about it for a year and it's money that's gone, which I think is a smart option to have. I mean, also, it's something that happens in America much more than we're probably aware of in the UK, isn't it? Because quite a few of their streamers have sort of ad-free or ad additional ads options. I went to an RTS uh, event on streaming and talking to Discovery, and they were saying that the potential is that the yield for kind of subscription plus ads can be better than subscription, can't it? Yeah, I think that's right. And in fact, you know, Disney owns a couple of other properties in Hulu and ESPN in in the States. So you add in all of those subscribers together and they're they're up to about, you know, close to 200 million. So I think they've got experience of, as you say, how attractive the combination of the two can be. You know, in the UK, that's something that the likes of Sky have experimented with in, in terms of Now TV and their own Offer. So I think that the uh, chief financial officer of Netflix was asked about advertising recently and said, well, said, said never say never, which I think it feels more equivocal than, than previous answers. So, I mean, I'd be surprised if they do it anytime soon. I think it's not a quick thing to turn around. And I think it does slightly go against the grain of some of the, the company ethos at Netflix in terms of a really sort of seamless user experience. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if in the longer term they have to entertain that as well. Well, just turning to Netflix, I mean, they're kind of holding out against ads, but um, they're not worried about hiking their uh, subscription prices. Um, another increase for UK and Ireland customers, uh, which is over to kind of about 20% in two years. They don't seem worried about um, upping their subscription cost. Is that just because they're in a dominant position and people like Netflix and they're going to have to stomach it? Going above £10 for the standard plan in the UK does feel like a bit of a a watershed and, and will give people pause for thought. I mean, they will have run the numbers and know that even if they lose subscriptions, they will get more revenue ultimately. And they're really keen to position themselves as, as not the debt flicks, as some people have unfairly branded them in terms of borrowing a lot of money in order to commission that content. I mean, they still added 18 million subs over the year, but that's actually, you know, the, the lowest since 2015. As far as investors go, those graphs are not going up as steeply as they once were, even if it's in a better financial position 
than it was a few years ago. Also, in some of their markets, they're testing a system at the moment, probably to um, try and stem password sharing. What what have they been doing? So they're doing some tests in South America at the moment, so giving people the option of sharing their password on a paid-for basis rather than unofficially uh, with people who are outside of their, their household. I think, as you say, it's an honesty box policy, which I'm not sure how far they'll get without a bit of stick to enforce it, really, because it's, you know, I think m- most people are not unaware that they're against the terms of the agreement in terms of doing that. I think that for a long time they were, you know, very aware of but quite happy with the password sharing as long as the graphs were all trending aggressively upwards i think that the sort of it, it shows that they're feeling the squeeze a bit more i think that they're they're feeling the need to mop that up i mean i'm sure they'll also feel pressure from rights holders for content that's not their own to kind of close that gate as well and obviously different tech companies do different things in different regions don't they i think looking at it it was about 10 percent of the price for adding an additional user so someone who maybe shouldn't be part of your family who now is is part of your family through netflix which i thought was quite a, an encouraging price point to try and convert people across obviously if they wanted to their systems could be much tougher can it detecting where different users are and yeah. turn them off straight away if they wanted yeah they could i mean i think there's a there's a risk with this which i'm sure they will have factored in that you know a couple of households might actively <laughs> cancel one of their membership start subscribing uh, under one and then convert to this and save a bit of bit of cash you know i suspect they sort of tried to factor that in 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 making the discount not so appealing that regular subscribers would go down that road that was dan taylor watts you can hear his breakdown of other video streamer news including netflix's push into gaming apple's move into sport and what to expect from the new itvx interface on our patreon page just go to patreon.com slash media pod and whilst we're on our easter break uh, there's three hours of bonus interviews available for you to get your media fix on the patreon Uh, and as i said just go to patreon.com slash media pod to get more from ed vasey warren nettleford cnn's michael holmes the week juniors anna bassi and albert's karis taylor Uh, plus by doing it it makes you a supporter of the show patreon.com slash media pod we'll be back after this Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And on the show, I still have Karen and Charlotte uh, with me to cover the news in brief. Um, Earlier this week, we heard that Talk TV, media podcast favourite topic, uh, has made some announcements and they're going to be launching on Monday, April the 25th. Um, uh, Karen, at the end of the release, it clarified some of the confusion that we've been talking about, other people have been talking about, about how talk radio and talk TV are going to work. What did we what did we learn? Uh, so there will be some original broadcast programming created for Talk TV specifically. Um, and then in the sort of non-primetime hours, it looks like they're going to be basically simulcasting effectively the um, the radio programs as video. Um, Talk TV's Talk Radio has obviously been doing a lot of video work anyway. They've got, you know, but they, they they video most of their um, most of their presenter programs anyway, and then churn it out as pretty effective kind of social enabled clips. So I suppose it's quite an easy and efficient thing for them to be doing. And then they've got a couple of kind of pre- more prestige programs like the Sharon Osbourne quiz show type thing that they're doing um, that that are going to go out mm-hmm. in prime time hour. So um, yeah, it's kind of a kind of a mix and match approach that they've taken. Oh, it was interesting, isn't it? I mean, talk radio, their visual stuff is really good. And they've obviously worked on that for a, a good couple of years. Uh, it looks impressive. Um, and they've, they've got it kind of down pat. And I suppose for the new teleoperation, they can just concentrate on, at the moment, looking like three or four hours maybe of, of sort of quality primetime shows, which are going to be simulcast back on the radio station in sort of off-peak for radio, off-peak hours of, of, of 7 p.m. Uh, onwards. Um, do you think that gives them a better chance of creating a decent channel than you know than GB News had, which had to basically start from scratch doing it all themselves? Yeah, I mean, I do think they're in a better position than GB News to start well, or at least not completely fall at the first hurdle. I don't necessarily think that's a high bar because <laughs> it's being better than GB News isn't isn't much. Um, and I, you know, I'm I'm still a little unsure about how much of an audience there really is going to be for this for this channel. I think, you know, the talk talk radio works really well because it, you know, it fits exactly what works in radio. Um, you know, where people are people are listening to radio, they like, you know, lots of long discursive conversation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I'm not sure that translates one to one into a more visual format. Um, I suppose they might as well. They have the content if the, you know they can take a punt on it. I think unlike GB News, because they don't have all the startup costs, the the risk to them is is lower, and they are a really slick operation. I have to say, years ago, I've I've been interviewed a few times on various different talk radio shows, um, Julia Hartley Brewer's show, for example. And I was impressed by how slick they were about as soon as I was off the air, they immediately had cut a series of video clips. They'd push them out on social. Um, they were already translating it into kind of, you know, bites. They had it up on their website. And so I think their team is really good. They know what they're doing. Um, and they've, you know, they're, a, as you say, they're a, an established team. So we'll see. I just, you know, I, I also think that, you know, the hours of operations when people are, as, as we've discussed, listening to their radio programs are just so different than on TV and I'm not sure that there isn't already 
quite a lot of TV news and discussion. I'm not sure what hole they're really filling, but, you know, it, why not? <laughs> they can take a punt, sure. Let's see how I mean, it goes. Sh- I mean, Charlotte, this sort of hybrid kind of radio TV format seems to be um, building an interest. GB News broadcast nationally on, on DAB Digital Radio. Um, it's a very efficient use of, of time. Um, do you think there is a danger that that it won't be so great for the radio and then it won't the radio won't be so great for the for the TV? Will it fall between two stools? I do find it harder to picture the prime times TV stuff on the radio than perhaps the other way around because you know if they're doing anything in the studio I'm not sure ne- how that will necessarily translate as well but you know I'm very happy to watch it and see because TV news for example is quite um, you know they're usually sitting having a discussion and talk TV may well be exactly the same and work in exactly the same way as TV news but then again they might be a bit more lively you know we don't know yet yeah, it's an interesting time for experiment. I do wonder if Talk TV are just have, as we've discussed, learned lessons from the GB News launch and so are, are not going, you know, too fast, too quickly. So they're trying to do prime time really well. And then if it does prove popular, then maybe they could do some more bespoke TV stuff in the daytime. You know, they've they've left it open for that. Um, if the simulcast stuff doesn't do that well but the evening does you know why not they've got the resources of news uk they've got their um really nice studios in london bridge so um i i don't think that what they launch with necessarily has to be what it stays long term but don't forget the the one big thing they do have uh is piers morgan who is um you know, whatever you think about him, he's a massive name, a massive broadcaster, and I think he will bring people in. He's a one-man self-promotion machine driving social, obviously, this pick-up on the, the newspapers as well. I mean, it's a great test, isn't it? Like, uh, If you have someone like that um, you know, on a platform that has good distribution, can it make an impact? Um, or actually being on a high channel number, are you out of sight, out of mind for the, for the public in general? When I've spoken to GB News, they really make the point that although their TV viewership numbers aren't very high, um, they are getting really good reach on social media. So the same, I I would have thought, will apply to Talk TV, where even if their um, uh, broadcast uh, audience isn't that massive, they have, you know, huge potential on social um, and that kind of matters as much nowadays so as long as people are talking about Piers Morgan and talking about Sharon Osbourne I think they'll be happy. But I think that's the thing I mean the the Piers Morgan slash Julie Hartley Brewer strategy is all about generating polarisation and outrage and saying controversial things that then clip really well and can be circulated on social Um, it's all you know effective enough as it goes but I'm not sure it builds an audience and if in the long run you can't build an audience um, that actually tunes in on a regular basis that advertisers want to want to work with then you know it's all for naught but it definitely can get you through a launch phase for sure um, and I would expect that to work better for talk than it did for GB. Uh, well we see so m- Monday April 25th uh, it will be on telly and it's already popping up on some of the TV platforms at the moment uh, all of which brings us to the glamorous world of the media quiz this week it's entitled media milestones 
so it's been a week of firsts among platforms and broadcasters. I'm going to describe three headlines. You need to tell me which media company has made it a milestone. Three rounds. Buzz in with your name if you know the answer. So, Karen, you'll say... Karen. Uh, and Charlotte, you'll say... Charlotte. Uh, let's play Media Milestones. Right, question number one. Explainer videos on the war in Ukraine have been busting records for which major UK broadcaster? Karen. Karen. I think it was Channel 4. It is Channel 4. So they've drawn 120,000 new followers on Snapchat and the Channel 4 News YouTube account has passed over 2 million subscribers since the war broke out. Um, Charlotte, I mean, they've been engaging kind of with teenagers, with younger audiences, uh, doing better than lots of people are. Is this the, the future Channel 4 News audience? Yeah, I think that is the idea. Um, to be fair, lots of people are doing really well at the same thing at the moment. And when I spoke to someone at Channel 4 News this week, they said the same thing that Sky News said um, a couple of months ago, which is basically that they discovered that using their experienced correspondence to explain the news to a younger audience. Um, so people like seeing people who have experienced a war zone before, you know, um, can sort of compare it, um, use their experience to explain it better and that's what people like and then yeah um people obviously are then aware of the brand and will will come to channel 4 news in future and yeah it seems to be working there especially the as i say this explainer style stuff i think the explainer style videos is a fantastic innovation um that i'm really happy to see media outlets using more the bbc's done some great ones as well um because i think the news has a tendency to it's in the name it tends to prioritize perhaps a little too much just what's new and for bringing in an audience that hasn't been following the story along um it can be really off-putting and i think it's especially for younger viewers it's really much more welcoming rather than having them feel like they're coming into a soap in the middle of a big plot line to just give them a, a step back and say look this is the history this is where it's come from this is what's happened um not a dumbing down at all but um you know i think the explainers are a great way into the news and i'd, I'd like to see more of them frankly because social media could use a lot more context <laughs> well speaking of young audiences uh, question number two uh, one social media company has been reaching three to four year olds uh which company has found its youngest ever audience karen karen who is it um, as somebody who used to have a toddler myself, uh, it, it's, it's TikTok, which is apparently very big with the under five set now. So why is TikTok? Why are parents happy to give TikTok to under fives? Well, <laughs> not speaking for myself, of course, just what I've heard from total strangers. Um, when, when my daughter was young, it wasn't TikTok, it was YouTube videos. Um, but the desperation of a parent when you're just trying to get dinner cooked to just keep a small child focused on anything other than them for five minutes so that you can saute the onions um, is completely relatable to me. And I think TikTok, because it has that kind of endless streaming video concept, um, it's ideal for, for young people of, of before an age where they can really follow a complex story um, but they just need to be distracted by a bit of visuals. Now whether that's a good thing from a child development point of view possibly not but it's certainly very handy for parents who need babysitters that, in is an it, electronic form. Is it just because it, there's movement on the screen and you can flick it up and down and so a, a little child can just be yeah. lost in it without really knowing what's being shown? 
Yeah, literally. I mean, they're you know, that is they're not sophisticated enough to be following a story. They just want to see bright colours and things moving. Um, and you know, that this is why some of the biggest performing YouTube videos of all time are just like little baby bump um, you know, songs. I've listened to hundreds of hours of the wheels on the bus because um that's all kids want is just, you know, at that age. It's just some bright colours, some songs, something to keep them distracted enough to work. And that's frankly exactly what TikTok was designed to do. Uh, Charlotte, could this be the Press Gazette's next media platform, uh, re- redeveloping the news just in shiny colours for three or four-year-olds? Yeah, going to beat news around to it. <laughs> <laughs> OK, uh, question number three. Uh, which media company has set itself the target of making sure 25% of its staff are from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds? Charlotte. Charlotte, who is it? It's the BBC. So they've previously had targets about um, gender diversity and uh, ethnic diversity and now they are setting their sights on getting a quarter of staff from more working class backgrounds. I was having a quick look at this and I, I couldn't really make out um, is it when is it when you were growing up is it now how do they do we know how they judge um, kind of poorer backgrounds? Yes basically it's if when you were growing up your breadwinning parent uh, had an occupation that is in the lower socioeconomic or working class sort of categorization. So it's sort of looking at, um, I guess, kind of social mobility off the back of that as well, isn't it? Or trying to encourage social mobility by looking at, at that at that group. Um, Karen, is this a good idea or is this a, a, a sop to the to the government? Um, it could be both. <laughs> Frankly, if you're if you're a broadcaster that relies to some extent upon the goodwill of the government not trying to yank your ability to raise income through licensing, it doesn't necessarily make bad strategy to try and, you know, uh, demonstrate your public value. Um, It is also part of the BBC's remit. It has always been part of the BBC's remit to be the broadcaster for all of Britain, uh, not just for the more affluent public that um, can more easily attract um, streaming service subscriptions and ad revenue. Um, And then thirdly, it it might actually genuinely be a good place for them to find an audience because um, it is a niche that is not well served by the other broadcasters. Um, And because it's, you know, it's available um, on terrestrial television, the lower social and economic orders might be some of the last people to be subscribing to some of these subscription services. So actually a higher proportion of the remaining audience available to the BBC on broadcast channels might indeed be um, from that group. So let's see how that goes. But that doesn't seem like a terrible strategy um, on its face, as well as being kind of their demonstration of how they're living up to their public service requirement. I think it is fascinating and I think you are right in that it's totally the right thing to do. Um, I'd love to see how it would work in practice. So I was thinking I would probably fit into that group just with with, with my family and how, how I grew up. Um, but obviously my life has evolved and changed over the last 15 to 20 years. You know, it's that do you become like a lucky box ticker it's like sort of you've got far with a job interview and then they're like oh let's go through your background oh even better you know um whereas it wouldn't really add much by suddenly if the bbc added me as a lower socioeconomic person if that make if that makes sense i mean it's it's a tough thing to um to measure and how you bring that into the to the the cv and interview process 
Yeah, I mean, it is a bit of a challenge, I suppose. And, and you're right that there will be people who no longer fit the definition of that target demographic who might have grown up in that target demographic. Um, but A, I'd say they've got to start somewhere. Mm. Um, and B, I would say that, you know, social mobility is not such that that's enough to make up the 25%, right? There just aren't enough, um, you know, people who have moved upwards um, in the in the economic ladder um, to make up that. In fact, you know, social mobility is... is infamously not as not as good as it should be and and mm. in some by some measures not as good as it used to be um so i think where the bbc can play a role in that it's good i mean i think you know even during lockdown when for example the bbc really fulfilled its public public sector remit by adding um educational programs that met the national curriculum when um you know when schools were were unable to meet I think that's a really great example of how, you know, they can be smart about seeing where there is an unmet need in the public that probably would not be met by a commercial broadcaster and getting in there. Um, so I think they need to just think about how they're going to do it, though, because, it, you know, it, the danger is quite often attempts to reach that that target demographic fail because they're a bit poorly considered and, and frankly condescending. So it, it, it has to be, you know, genuinely great programming made with that audience in mind, not just, you know, something that, that feels, you know, a bit snotty and condescending to that group. I mean, Charlotte, did you notice anything else from the annual report that the BBC have pledged to do uh, in the next year? Yeah, there's lots of things um, related to news, like they're saying that they're going to finish moving all the journalists that they've planned to move out of London uh, by September. So that was a big story last year. There are lots of certain journalistic teams being moved to different cities around the UK to improve the BBC's sort of spread across the UK. They're going to get more like local audio on BBC Sounds. Um, uh, what else? Refresh the BBC News app. Um, I don't know if other people noticed, um, for me and a colleague, we noticed that the BBC News app logo changed this week. So it's now in line <laughs> with uh, iPlayer and Sounds. And we were very upset. We were like, oh my God, what's this? Um, but I think there's going to be more... Um, change within the actual app so and with more personalization so hopefully um that won't be too um horrifying because you know that app has been the same for quite a long time actually they did make that point it's been quite a few years considering apps do often change quite a lot like that's that's a long time so um it is also the BBC's longest logo rollout. Uh, I think like weather is still to come. And it's like, how long does it take to roll out new logos? Anyway, that's getting into my own uh, OCD nature. Um, right, end of the quiz. Uh, well done to Karen. I think two points to one. Uh, we will be sending you a leather bound edition of the BBC annual uh, plan for next year. Uh, thank you both for joining me on the show. Um, Karen, how can we keep uh, updated on uh, your book progress and your other media efforts? Well, just follow me on Twitter at Karen, K-A-R-I-N-J-R. And um, you can hear my random musings about whatever political tirade I'm ranting about that day and whatever's happening in the fairy kingdom. <laughs> and Charlotte, uh, where can people find your writing? Uh, yes, so pressgazette.co.uk or you can also find me on Twitter at Charlotte Tobit. Thanks for staying us throughout the show. And if you've been enjoying it, uh, you can help us out um, by doing one of two things. You can become a patron of the show. Just sign up at patreon.com slash media pod. Lots of extra benefits there too. Uh, plus, really easy, and you can do this now. Just open a browser on your phone or on your computer if you're listening there. Just go to themediapodcast.com slash survey. 
just a few quick questions we'd love to know what you think about the show and we'll even pop you in a draw to win a 50 quid john lewis voucher so open up that browser themediapodcast.com slash survey uh, and whilst you're there if you haven't already uh, remember to follow or subscribe to us uh, at apple Podcasts or spotify or google Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this so you get every new episode as they drop uh, my name is matt deegan the producer was phoebe adler ryan with support from matt hill it was a rethink audio production we'll see you in a few weeks after easter hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.